Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So, we've been away a lot recently, and this is in part because Edmund has been working very hard on his MPhil in intellectual history. And he finished off this past term with an essay on G.A. Cohen and the September group. And I want to ask Edmund a little bit about this essay. What did he argue? Uh, What was it like putting it together? Who stood out? who struck him as particularly interesting. And we're just going to kind of build from there and, and have a discussion of G.A. Cohen and the September group. So to start off, Edmund, uh, what did you argue in this essay? How did it develop? Hmm. Well, the essay began, I guess, with an interest in theories of history and ideas of um, social evolution. Um, that I kind of developed, well, in a way during uh, my undergrad degree in politics. Um, but I had a kind of interested in um, in Darwin and evolutionary theory before undergrad, and then at undergrad, I developed an interest in sociological explanations of history um, related to. Uh, marks and commentaries on um, that theory of history, and particularly a book by G.A. Cohen called Karl Marx's Theory of History, A Defense. And I thought one way I could try to uh, find my way into um, putting these ideas together would be looking at the school of thought that G.A. Cohen founded in the late 70s and 80s uh, called Analytical Marxism. And this school of thought was uh, kind of expressed by a group of thinkers, uh, of which Cohen was one, um, called the September Group. And the September Group um, met by way of a kind of chance exchange of letters in 1978 when uh, Cohen's book was awaiting publication. And um, a scholar called John Elster was reading the manuscript for, uh, for Cohen's book. And Cohen, as it happens, was also reading um, Elster's manuscript for Cambridge University Press. Um, which later developed into the books Explaining Technical Change and uh, Making Sense of Marx in the, in the 80s, the first half of the 80s. And so they got together and uh, had some conversations. And in 1979, um, they decided to start bringing together a group of people who thought a bit like them, um, and Cohen says in the introduction to the 2000 edition of 
of the defense that the quote the prehistory of what is now called the September group was as follows with Cohen's assistance Elster convened a weekend meeting in London in September 1979 of about a dozen scholars of Marxist or quasi-Marxist stripe from several European countries, all of whom were working on the concept of exploitation. We found our exchanges congenial and stimulating, so a similar meeting again on exploitation with roughly the same cast occurred in London in September of 1980. At the close of that meeting, it was decided to meet annually, but to remove the restriction of discussion to exploitation. The personnel, as of 1981, were the most dedicated who had attended in 1979 and or 1980, together with one or two new invitees. Um, since 1981, membership of the group has been remarkably stable. As I write, we consist of um, Pranav Bardhan, Barclay, Samuel Bowles, Amherst, Robert Brenner, Los Angeles, G.A. Cohen, Oxford, Joshua Cohen, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, Philip Van pa Paris, um, John Roma, Hillel Steiner, Robert Van Devine, and Eric Olin Wright. Uh, since 1982, when Bard had joined, there have been two departures and two fresh adhesions. John Elster and Adam Tazorowski left in 1993. In reaction, so they said to what they considered to be unsatisfactory aspects of the intellectual character that the group had evolved, others of us thought that their fellows had more to do with the demise of European communism. Bowles joined in 1987 and Joshua Cohen in 1996. So this group of thinkers were committed, uh, Cohen argues, to... Um, this idea called analytical Marxism. And G.A. Cohen suggests that um, analytical Marxism is um, opposed to two ideas. One is a dialectical idea of history, and the other is a holistic idea of history. It's not quite clear what opposing uh, a dialectical idea of history means, because part of the critique of the dialectic that the analytical Marxists offer is that there is no definition for the dialectic, and therefore it is uh, conceptually um, void. But the critique of holism is more clear and finds a lot of purchase in Elster's argument for methodological individualism, which is that instead of explaining history in terms of big entities, like states and classes, we should look to particular individuals and their motivations. And when we do that, and when we put individuals together into, into competitive frameworks using game theory, we can try to make better predictions about the future than we would make if we were um, trying to guess what these big social forces um, are doing. Uh, so it's a kind of a bottom-up approach where you start with the micro and then work your way up uh, in a kind of Hobbesian, uh, Hobbesian um, uh, individualism where, where you start with the natural subject and then you work up to the artificial agents uh, w w of which, the, um, which are composed of these, the little bits, the atomic individuals. And I think that, I mean, this, uh, this kind of thinking is philosophically quite common in um, Britain since Hobbes, and I think has a lot to do with kind of rejections of, um, well, in Hobbes's time of scholasticism and kind of uh, perceived uh, continental abstractions in religion. Um, and in the time of the September group, 
a similar reaction against continental abstractions in uh, philosophy and sociology and uh, a kind of determination to make things more grounded and empiricist. Um, and I, I think if there is one basic methodology that the September group seems to be motivated by, it's a kind of, it's a kind of empiricism that says that you can't just start from the abstractions, you have to start from the concrete. And I think this is even the case in G.A. Cohen's defense, because though G.A. Cohen's defense is extremely philosophical and rarely cites concrete examples, um, preferring to use logical arguments and metaphors, uh, the book also, in defending Marx's theory of history, places the emphasis on <clears throat> what is material, what is concrete, uh, rather than what is abstract and ethereal, and argues that the great merit of uh, Marx's theory of history is that it places this emphasis on uh, on the tangible rather than the intangible, uh, in particular on the forces of production. And for and for G. A. Cohen, um, as for Marx, at least in the eighteen fifty nine preface to the Critique of Political Economy, it is the forces of production that drive history, and the forces of production, uh, G. A. Cohen argues, are composed of uh, instruments of production, uh, raw materials, and labour power. And so the way in which forces of production are used is when people, as labourers, use tools, which could be as uh, basic as the uh, kind of stone tools of the, uh, of the older one um, two million years ago, um, or as sophisticated as the um, digital technologies around today, um, Though in particular, I think uh, when Marxists talk about forces of production, they like thinking of industrial technologies um, and agricultural technologies, the stuff that really powers economies and powers growth. And that's what I think uh, Cohen's focusing on too when he says that forces of production are driving history. He's saying that history is functional for the development of the forces. That is to say, the development of the forces is the basic function or need that uh, humans in history have. And so all of the relations of production or the institutions that we have exist in order to develop the forces or technologies. And uh, in this way, Cohen is saying that uh, contrary to the kind of generic view of Marx as a theorist of class struggle, drawing on the 1848 Communist Manifesto, Instead, the maturer Marx that we see uh, from the 1850s onwards tries to tie ideas of class struggle and technology together. And the argument is that each stage of the class struggle corresponds to uh, the development of the forces. And which class wins each struggle is the class that is best able to develop the forces of production. Uh, so for Cohen, the reason why the bourgeoisie won the class struggle against the aristocracy is that the bourgeoisie was better able to wield technologies. And through wielding technologies, uh, kind of acquire the social power needed to win the class struggle. Um, and so in this way, uh, Cohen argues for the primacy of the productive forces on, in history, and that history develops according to um, the development of these forces. But this is a view that meets a challenge from Elster, who... Uh, doesn't think that functional explanation is valid. He doesn't think that it's valid to say 
the institutions exist in order to develop technologies, because that phrase, in order to, implies a kind of purpose to history, that the institutions or classes exist in order to develop technologies, uh, assumes some kind of impersonal directing force, a kind of Hegelian uh, zeitgeist that, by the tenets of analytical Marxism, can't exist. Because um, there can be no mechanism given for it. For Elster, it's like saying, as Lamarck did, that the reason why the giraffe has a um, uh, long neck is not due to um, a kind of series of evolutionary adaptations in Darwin's sense, but instead because the giraffe kind of stretched its neck through its lifetime and gradually reached towards the the up, upper branches. Um, it kind of assumes a kind of purpose, a kind of direction that doesn't exist. And so for Elsa, it, it doesn't make sense to say that um, history is just the development of the productive forces. It's got to be more complicated than that. It's got to be individuals competing over resources um, and cl- the classes uh, uh, which are composed of individuals competing over resources and using technologies to do so. but it's not necessarily driven by the productive forces um, because for Elster, the productive forces only really got off the ground big time with the Industrial Revolution. And before then, it doesn't make so much sense to say that the productive forces have primacy. And so for both historical and methodological reasons, Elster rejects Cohen's uh, interpretation of Marx's theory of history and argues for a somewhat more nuanced view that it's a kind of mixture of institutions and technologies that developing through time that that that, that, that lead to change, um, and this is because basically of individuals' uh, competing motives and uh, and individuals' interests rather than the interests of bigger social entities. And so, the kind of theories of histories that they have, uh, Cohen and Elster have the kind of technological emphasis of Cohen, and the more um, kind of institutional emphasis of Elster, I think these views are to some degree founded on their methodologies. On one hand, Cohen's functionalist methodology that says that history is this, the, the development of basically functions and that technology is the basic function of history. On the one hand, and Elster's view on the other hand, that history is um, can be understood through an intentionalist methodology, a methodological individualism that says that it's uh, it's the motives and intentions and desires of individuals that matter. But interestingly, these views aren't actually that different because Elster's critique of Cohen is that a function is like a, a purpose, a kind of... Um, uh, a function is, is, implies some kind of desiring or moving towards in history. It kind of implies that history is kind of like a person which wants things, which wants technology to develop, which wants to grow and develop. But for Elster, you can't really ascribe desires to uh, to, to big entities like history or, 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 or class struggle or the mode of production. Instead, desires are properties of individuals. And so instead of assuming that history is driven by abstract purpose, uh, Elster thinks that history is driven by the concrete purposes of individuals. But both views are basically 
purposive, that they both assume that history is, has a kind of purpose, has a kind of teleology. The only difference being that for Cohen, the, the teleology is kind of quite rigid and objective, whereas for Elster, everyone has different intentions and purposes, and they're all fighting over those objections and purposes. But they both think that it is purposes that are driving history, that there is kind of some kind of um, will at play that is driving things, or wills at play that are driving things. That, in other words, they are kind of almost, I want to say, subjective theories of history, and that they, they assume that history can be understood through the ideas of, of need and want, and that history involves the satisfaction of needs and wants or functions. But what if history doesn't have that kind of, that tendency? What if sometimes things happen not because people want them to happen, or because they're meant to happen by virtue of some trans-historical teleology? What if things happen just because those things are adapted to the situation, just because those things happen to survive in a competitive environment. And I think that in, uh, in, in focusing on purposes, I think both Cohen and Elster miss perhaps what is more important in history, which is processes and processes of change, which are not entirely impervious to individuals' purposes or social functions, but which I think at least are independent of these things. And I think in some sense, determine whether purposes or functions are in the end satisfied. Um, so instead of the purposes driving history, it's the processes that drive whether the purposes are uh, satisfied or not. And often the purposes are frustrated. Um, and I think this view is... Um, pertinent to the work of uh, uh, Philippe Van Paris, who argues that um, in his book, Evolutionary Explanation in the Social Sciences, written in between uh, Cohen's book and Elster's book, um, so Cohen's book, The Defense, written in, published in 78, Elster's Making Sense of Marx, published in 1985, and Van Paris's Evolutionary Explanation in the Social Sciences, published in 1981. And Van Paris argues that, as the title suggests, that we should neither try to explain history through uh, the purposes of individuals, as in Elster, nor in terms of the purposes of social structures, um, as in Cohen. We, we shouldn't really explain things through Van Paris wants to say, and at one point explicitly says, conspiracy theory, where we try to say that history is the fulfillment of purposes. Um, in, instead, we should uh, really look at history more as Darwin looks at evolution as a kind of blind mechanic which selects for some traits and selects against others. Now, the only thing I think missing in Van Paris is an idea of how this exactly works. Van Paris employs a lot of different uh, examples and frameworks for thinking about um, how uh, social evolution might come about. Um, and he insists that such a theory of social evolution is necessary because the alternatives are just so dire. <laughs> the alternatives are assuming that history has a direction or is driven 
purely by the wills of individuals, uh, when instead uh, history isn't driven by either of these things. The example that he gives is um, government's economic policies. They're not really dr- just driven by um, the desires of politicians, nor are they purely driven by the desires of the people who give donations to political parties. Um, instead, government economic policy is driven by what is competitive in election time and what is competitive on the global market. And so these kind of processes of institutional uh, selection where the given environment in which there is competition taking place, be it political or economic, is, is shaping what the policy is, what decisions are made. And of course, people want to do things in these environments. Everybody wants to accomplish some goal. But whether those goals are satisfied or frustrated depends a great deal on the competitive environment in the first place. And is, it is that environment, the context, which Van Paris thinks should uh, really have explanatory uh, primacy um, rather than um, some set of desires or some telos, some direction to history. Instead, Van Paris suggests that history is a bit more blind than that and a bit more chaotic than either Elster or um, Cohen suggests. And in this way, I think the basic thrust of analytical Marxism seems to be a kind of rebellion against philosophical or purely philosophical ideas of history and an insistence that we need something a bit more rigorous. But I think in neither Cohen or Elster do we really get that. We get hints about the content of history. And I think in Cohen and Elster, we really do get a lot of content, but we don't really get an idea of the structure of history, what really is shaping history. And I I think in Van Paris, we get the clearest idea uh, about what might be um, shaping history, some kind of blind evolutionary mechanic, which isn't the same as natural evolution, but which is analogous to it. In this way, in, in my project, I trace basically these three ideas of history, uh, Cohen's theory of history, through Elster's methodology of, of history, through to Van Paris's science of history. And uh, I think that each of these pick up on something, um, something valid. I think Cohen's theory of history has something interesting to say about technology and institutions and class struggle. I think Elster's methodology of history has something interesting to say about how we um, collect data and the importance of starting with what we can observe rather than uh, what we simply abstract. And I think that um, Van Paris's science of history is in some ways both the most uh, elusive but also the most promising of the three ideas because it, I think, suggests a third way um, between the emphasis on the large social structures that we get in Cohen and the emphasis on individuals that we get in Elster, because uh, Van Paris focuses on what mediates between the two and what kind of drives the two, which is the processes of social evolution, which uh, I think Van Paris quite rightly thinks drive history, but which I think 
may still need a bit more elucidation to nail down this uh, this promising idea of history. That's very interesting, Edmund. I have all sorts of different questions and thoughts. You you summarize that very well. I think that's probably the the best summary of of something that you've given on the show. I think yeah, I the other day I was at a talk uh, and somebody was was giving the old bonobos and chimps example of you know, systems can be bottom up or top down. It can be ruled by one male chimp who beats up all the other chimps, or it can be ruled by a group of female bonobos who socially ostracize the other bonobos. And, and oftentimes people set it up as if, you know, this question of rule by a group or rule by the individual is the central question in the design of institutions and systems. And I had this thought, and it's that bonobos and chimps have more in common with each other than either does with us, because they both have rule by apes. And we have rule by impersonal systems and structures, by states and markets, artificial agents, corporate agents, and incentive structures that are not reducible to what any given individual or group of individuals wants or even would benefit from in some functionalist sense. Hmm. And I think that those impersonal systems of incentives are very much like what you're describing. They're, they're kind of Darwinian. It's a set of adaptive criteria that uh, you either align with or you don't align with. And insofar as you align with it, you tend to be selected for. And insofar as you don't align with it, you tend to be selected against. The example that pops into my head is is the American primary system, where the primaries were instituted as a way of shoring up legitimacy for the candidate selection mechanism in the United States, which faced a legitimacy crisis in 1968 because the candidates who were picked were not candidates that many voters liked. And this system, which was initially set up just to shore up the legitimacy of the mechanic, quickly developed a, a set of incentives of its own that nobody really anticipated when it was set up. It was thought that even though you had this primary system, it would still be the case that the party would decide on the candidates because the party could shape the environment of the primaries in such a way that the candidates that it wanted to see go through would still win, even though primaries are being held. There was a book that came out a few years ago about this idea that the party decides, no matter what you do, the party decides. And I think in recent years, that's been to some degree disrupted. It's been more common for people to win who are not necessarily the people that party insiders would like to have win. Uh, not to say that those people are, are necessarily better or, or more emancipatory, but they certainly are different from the people that the party insiders are inclined to support. And those people are prevailing because they happen to comply with a set of incentives that are to do with winning primary votes. Primary voters like people who are brash and loud and aggressive and pugnacious and don't compromise. And therefore, those kinds of people are being selected for by the primary system. And that's happening even though nobody in particular really intended for that to happen. And if you ask anybody, do you think that's the best way to pick candidates to run for office? 
very few people would tell you that they think that that's the best way. And many of the people who like primaries are trying to widen the primary electorate and, and make the primaries open or allow independents to vote in the primaries precisely because nobody actually thinks that choosing candidates through a primary is the best way to do it. A primary of people who are registered supporters or, or members of, of a party, or in the case in the United States, if, you know, just someone who's registered to vote as, say, a Democrat or as a Republican. Uh, it's a small number of people relative to the whole electorate, and a weird group of people relative to the whole electorate. Uh, and that's just one example of a kind of a system of impersonal incentives that grows beyond the point at which anybody can really do anything about it. At this point, the parties are full of people who are selected through primaries. And so those people don't have very much of a stake or interest in changing the primary system. Uh, and so you, you get to a point where the institution selects for a kind of, of person or for a kind of, of class or for a kind of technology, a kind of economic system. And by selecting for that, it creates power structures in which it becomes impossible to change the selection criteria. And I think it's even more fundamentally the case when we talk about economic phenomena like, say, uh, global tax rates or global tariffs or global regulations or global wages, where there isn't even a political institution that exists which is responsible for regulating those things globally. And so all such regulatory institutions exist in a competitive space where their regulations are influenced by the regulations of other bodies that they don't directly influence and which create the environment in which they regulate. Another question I had, I guess that wasn't a question, that was a comment, but a question I had as I was, as I was listening is to what degree do you agree with the analytical Marxists when they argue that the dialectic is, and this is the word they use, bullshit? Cohen wrote this whole paper on non-bullshit Marxism in which he says that the dialectic is bullshit. Do you agree with that? Well, I think one interesting irony about this is how I think to some degree the analytical Marxists are offering an interpretation of Marx that owes um, a great deal to Engels um, because the, the term historical materialism is um, coined by Engels, not Marx. The emphasis on Darwin is to some degree, uh, at least in terms of the published materials, the focus of Engels rather than Marx. Though, you know, I, I, uh, I think there is reason to think that Marx, um, especially in his letters, um, is uh, more, uh, more interested in Darwin than um, critics of Engels think. But I think in general, Engels tried to give a version of Marx that can be subjected to uh, scientific analysis. And I think in some way, uh, this uh, anticipates the critique of Marx that Karl Popper gives, that Marx's theory of history is not falsifiable. 
And because you can't falsify it, you can't prove it wrong because it's just so vague. It means that it's unscientific and therefore void. And I think that as well as writing in the shadow of Engels, um, the September group are writing in the shadow of logical positivism in the earlier in the early twentieth um, century. And, and logical positivism um, um, was the idea that if you can't, um, it, well, one logical positivist's writings, A.J. Ayer, the idea that if you can't verify something scientifically, then uh, th- 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 then the proposition doesn't make sense. And then Popper offers the kind of uh, the converse of this: the idea of falsification. Um, now, of course, the, the basic problem with this idea is that how can you verify the proposition? All non-verifiable propositions are void. Well, you, you can't verify it. Or, well. Um, or at least you can't falsify it, and it certainly doesn't seem easy to do so. So if the premise of the theory doesn't satisfy the, the criterion, the criterion needs some further criterion, then um, maybe this kind of radical empiricism is a bit, is, is a bit much. And I think that was the, the take that most people in the late 20th century had in logical positivism, that sure, science is good, but it's not all there is, and you need something else too. Um, and I think the continental analytics split in philosophy, I think you can see that in Marxism too, the split between the more kind of tradition of continental Marxism, uh, particularly in the work of Althusser, um, versus the uh, more an- analytical uh, Marxism. Uh, th- this is really a kind of version of the continental analytic split that we see in the early 20th century. Um, I mean, interestingly, Althusser and Cohen share similar concerns. Uh, Cohen was reacting to Althusser, and both of them focus on the 1859 preface. Uh, though Althusser has more time for a k- kind of Hegelian Marx than um, Cohen does, um, and Cohen tries to pin down the 1859 preface through more rigorous logical analysis. One, one interesting idea in the early 20th century logical positivism is Wittgenstein, who in, in the uh, um, Tractatus uh, Logico Philosophicus try to um, give a kind of account of, of propositions in terms of their in terms of their truth values, um, and in, in this way try to eliminate the uh, the unspeakable from philosophy, uh, getting rid of um, incoherence. The end of the Tractatus is. The, uh, the the proposition whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must remain silent, um, and uh, it, it was this idea that Wittgenstein, in his philosophical investigations later in his career, um, decided to kind of, um, in some ways, challenge with the idea that everything is just a language game, um, and you can't give a kind of logically sound basis for philosophy because that itself would just be another language game, another way of doing things with words. And and so I think a lot of a lot of analytical uh, Marxism is seen as void on the for the same reasons that analytical philosophy is void. That you can't really reduce everything to logical atoms. I mean, another really good example of this, I think, is mathematics, where um, Bertrand Russell, uh, along with a lot of other people, um, interestingly, 
including people supposedly you know, outside of analytical philosophy, uh, such as Frege, try to base mathematics on a kind of logical philosophical basis, on a kind of set of uh, logical statements that you could derive mathematical axioms from. And along came the mathematician um, uh, Kurt Gödel, who showed that this, uh, this, this, this project can't be done. You can never give a complete set of um, propositions. Every kind of set of uh, logical mathematical statements you give will be incomplete, and so th this project just this this project just can't be completed. Um, and so uh, this was in particular response to the set theory uh, of the followers of Frege, um, but I, I think it's also been seen to undermine the kind of logical atomism of uh, Russell um, and Whitehead, with whom he wrote the. Um, Principia Mathematica. And so basically, we, we see with analytical philosophy a, a whole series of very ambitious attempts to get rid of dialectical ideas of, uh, of ambiguity and uncertainty, to try to pin things down to a very clear set of uh, premises from which you can deduce with certainty some conclusions. Kind of trying to eliminate anything that's unclarifiable, but I think the basic problem with this is that you can never clarify everything. Because when you try to clarify one thing, you'll rely on something else that you can't clarify, and when you try to clarify that, well, then something else will be unclarified. You're always assuming something in every theory. No theory is completely watertight. It's also always relying on something outside of itself. And so I think the idea of the dialectic is that. Everything relates to everything else. Everything depends on everything else. You can never create a single watertight system that is kind of closed. Everything is kind of open to everything else. And every theory bleeds into every other theory. And so you can never really pin everything down. You can never take the stars and root them down to, uh, to Earth. You can never... Um, you can never... Uh, yeah... Um, pin everything down in the way that the analytical philosophers and the analytical Marxists wanted to. It sounds Equally. a bit like the uh, the empiricism rationalism debate that we've talked yeah, yeah, about before, where yeah, the empiricist is, yeah. wants to say either very clearly and with great certainty, this exists and it's true, or uh, if that level of certainty doesn't obtain, it doesn't exist and it's false. And this swinging between skepticism and a kind of dogmatic insistence is contrasted with rationalists who often posit value concepts mm. like the good or reason, concepts that are meant to provide this, this anchoring to theory, but which are purposefully complicated to the point where you cannot simply define them in a way which will satisfy an empiricist. The good has to have many different faces or aspects which become visible in different contexts, and the, the virtue of prudence is the virtue of being able to discern the context and how the good applies in the specific situation. All of that is very frustrating to an empiricist who wants to say, well, if it's different in every situation, then it doesn't have any content because it's not consistent. And therefore, it's a garbage concept or a useless concept. 
But then the empiricist runs into the trouble of, of not being able to draw on something like the good to provide some anchoring to their overall theory, and therefore running into the problem of not really being able to substantiate values, preferences, uh, on anything other than brute facts. So you end up with empiricists who describe morality through the brute fact of, well, you desire this, and there's nothing more to it apart from the fact that you desire it, and all values are just desires, and desires just exist as brute facts, uh, maybe mm -hmm. with some kind of evolutionary explanation, but certainly no normative value-based explanation. And I think that to a significant degree, this split within Marxism between analytic and continental camps has some of the features of an empiricist and rationalist split. And I think we, we could also say that perhaps the Anglo-American tradition in general is more empiricist and the continental tradition is more rationalist. Now, those might be stronger claims that I'm really justified in making. And maybe in equating all of these things together, I've been a little bit too hasty. Do you think I've been too hasty? No, I, I think I, I, I think I, I would agree with that. Yeah, I think, yeah, analytical philosophy is, is really empiricist. And yeah, continental philosophy is much more rationalist. Yeah, yeah completely. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that there are some, some problems that come out of both of these if you do them in isolation from the other. Because if you just think about values, it can often lead to a kind of cultural approach, which ignores the you know, real facts of the incentive structures of states and markets. And I think this way of describing in evolutionary terms states and markets as producing political and economic structural incentives that are reward certain kinds of ad adaptations and punish others. I think that's a very effective empirical way of describing how actually existing institutions work. The mm. thing that will that that is lost if you only focus on that is that there's a further set of human values that are often ignored or not uh, really administered to by these impersonal structural incentives. And I think that's important. If you have a kind of functionalist explanation, then there's an assumption that human needs or human values are served by this set of impersonal structures. But I think often there is a lack of overlap between the human concept of the good and the particular things which human institutions, especially impersonal, complex institutions, value. Oftentimes, these things mm. only have little bits in common, if they have anything in common at all, really. And when we talk about totalitarianism, what we're talking about is a, a system of institutions that is so overdetermining in its incentives, and the incentives are so perpendicular to human aims or human goals, that we are ruled in effect by a set of, of evolutionary imperatives that have nothing to do with our own values. And I think a lot of dystopias are about this, about the possibility of having artificial agents. Sometimes it's, it's made really simple by having it be robots or an artificial intelligence. But I think the same kind of argument can be made with reference to rule by markets, rule by extremely complex political systems, 
or ruled by uh, corporate, corporate persons. And it's really the same kind of complaint. It's a complaint that we're ruled by impersonal structures that don't really administer to human values. And the distinction continental theorists make between instrumental and substantive value, I think, is relevant here because instrumental value is the, the values of the adaptive evolutionary process, and substantive value is the whole set of human value, which includes all kinds of things that instrumental value may not care about or may not serve us. And oftentimes the defenders of systems of instrumental value will try to say, no, actually there is a connection between uh, this impersonal system and human values. No, actually the market does track everything that people desire. No, actually the state does respond to people's interests or to people's needs. But the, the constant point of skepticism from the continentals here is that how can a system that works entirely through empirical indicators, statistical indicators of how many people are buying this or how many people are voting for that. How can these kinds of systems really take into account all of human value? Because so much of what human beings value is difficult to quantify in those kinds of ways. If somebody votes, they might be voting for reasons that are easy to discern or easy to satisfy. They also might be voting for more abstract kinds of value-driven reasons that are difficult to quantify, difficult to discern. You can poll people and ask them about what their reasons are, but the way that you frame the question frames the way that they imagine they thought about their reasons. And it could be due to other kinds of psychological uh, phenomena or, uh, or values that they themselves aren't aware of or could not define for you. Human values are often very complicated and, and not easy for us to, to understand, even when we are looking at our own values and our own motivations and the things that we care about. We don't know everything that we care about. We don't have that level of self-awareness all the time. That's the point Montesquieu made about people not having enough self-awareness to even begin the journey of trying to cultivate virtues or to make themselves into better people. And I think that that... that becomes a, a, a trouble point. So in my life, I found that, you know, especially earlier in my career, when I was an undergrad, I would get annoyed with, with um, continental philosophy. And more recently, I find myself more often annoyed with analytic philosophy. But I think both are annoying on their own, because the analytic camp will describe in great detail how these structural incentives work, but it will tend to just ignore anything that can't fit into its methodology. So if you can't reduce it to an individual, in the case of the, the really hardcore methodological individualists, uh, if you can't reduce it to a desire, if you can't reduce it to something you can quantify or something which you can strictly define, it tends to get left out. And conversely, when you deal with continental theorists, oftentimes they are reluctant to really delve into how economic and political systems work because they don't want to talk about these instrumental features because they find them just so repulsive. And because they find them so repulsive, they don't want to dig into it. I think a lot of people retreat into a cultural conversation because it's more pleasant than having a, a, a brutal discussion of how is it that our tax policy comes to be the way that it is? How is it that our trade policy comes to be the way that it is? Why is it that the state is so limited in its ability to uh, do things that we 
would like to see it do? Why is it that it's so difficult for reform to happen or for revolution to happen? There's a, a deep reluctance to take fully seriously the constraints of instrumental systems and the degree to which the thing constrains behavior. So a lot of the continental theorists will just kind of vaguely denounce the thing as totalitarian and instrumental without really engaging with, with what you can concretely do about it. And conversely, you've got a lot of analytic theorists who ignore a lot of the things people value. And I think that that has been a big part of the frustration with them and, and part of the reason why analytic Marxism has not continued into the younger generation as much as perhaps in the 80s we might have expected. I think to a large degree in the 80s, Marxists responded to the rise of methodological individualism in the social sciences by trying to make Marxism more methodologically individualist. And when you look at the set of young people today who are attracted to ideas from Marx, a lot of them viscerally hate that methodological individualism which they associate with liberalism and with the neoliberal era. So they're not attracted to that. But then a lot of them end up kind of going back into the same old trodden paths of continental Marxists from 50, 60, 70 years ago, many of whom were theorizing about different conditions from the conditions that we now have. And a lot of them never really update their political economy because they're, they're mainly reading people from the post-war era, the interwar and post-war eras. So... Hmm. Uh, and a lot of the more recent yeah. continental theorists are not really strictly Marxists. They're really engaged in, in a kind of French post-structural, more Foucault, uh, Foucault, Foucaultian or biopolitical kind of theory that is not mm. straightforwardly uh, Marxist. So there's been a kind of gulf that's opened up because I don't really think any part of actually existing Marxism is is getting the balance right between empiricism and rationalism. I think we have people who have butchered it one way and people who have butchered it the other way. It's kind of ironic because Marx himself um, tried to tie his early interests in um, Hegel's philosophy with, um, which he kind of developed in the uh, 18... 20s, 1830s, early 1840s, uh, with his interests in uh, his, with his political interests in the 1840s and 1850s, um, together with his interest in political economy, uh, which came out particularly in the 1850s and 1860s, leading up to the publication of Capital Volume One in 1867, which is a uh, a book that is simultaneously philosophical in its approach to the economy, um, but also quite deeply historical. The, 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 the chapters on uh, factory and the working day are meticulously detailed and involve a kind of a synergy of the kind of abstractions of labour power and the commodity which Marx develops in the first half of the book with the kind of um, historical emphasis of the second half, though that itself suggests that Marx kind of swung from one to the other. And I think 
to a great degree, Marx tried to fuse empiricism and rationalism together. He uh, wrote Capital um, in the German language, but in the uh, writing in the British Library, he was you know, trying to draw on a lot of different threads and splice them together into something, something new—a kind of a kind of uh, synthesis, as he saw it. But I think that the project, to some degree, had a lot of implicit success. I think there are a lot of threads in Capital that people have teased out that have suggested a kind of project that Marx did uh, grasp towards. But I think, to some degree, the threads that people have teased out are t- tend to be the the different contrasting aspects. So the systematic whole is lost and the balance is lost. I, I think in all of these debates, it's the mediating ideas between the abstract and the concrete, between technology and classes, between um, the particular and the general that we need to bring things together. But it's precisely those ideas that tend to be lost. And so, for instance, I think with Marx's, uh, in terms of the, the, the theory of history, the emphasis is on the, uh, on the one hand, technology, on the other hand, class struggle, uh, this kind of polarity between the, 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 the concrete, the concrete forces and the social, the social relations uh, is something that kind of lacks something tying these things together, a kind of evolutionary explanation of why it is that classes evolve and develop technology as they evolve. And uh, I, I think to some degree, there is, there is a kind of hidden explanation there um, uh, that I think is to some degree, uh, to some degree missed when people, um, people read it. Uh, there's been a lot of work on similar kinds of evolutionary explanation in, uh, say, 18th century political economy in books like East Van Hont's Jealousy of Trade, which is quite quite a lot of popularity around uh, Cambridge and other centres for studying political thought and economic thought uh, recently. But it, it's still there's there's still a kind of reluctance to put these ideas. Um, Put these ideas together uh, to try to sp- bring together uh, the, the particular and the, the general, the abstract and the concrete. Um, yeah, and even when people focus on the middle uh, or on kind of middle terms, on kind of balancing terms like trade, because I think I think trade might be one way of pulling ideas of technology and class together in a theory of history. Even then, it then trade yet separated from. Uh, technology and from classes and gets considered on its own in terms of a pure kind of game theory model which we see in uh, in, in post-marginalist um, revolution economics to some degree um, and so the, the, these things are very hard to put together because whenever an idea is raised I think in in analytical uh, academia it always becomes necessary to just make that idea very, uh, very kind of watertight to respond to all the objections to that one idea. And so I think in this way, the academy has a kind of selection mechanic where the general ideas are necessarily selected against because those general ideas can't be pinned down. 
And it's the ideas that can be pinned down that are the ideas that will really kind of attract the interests of funding bodies and that will therefore be selected for in the in, in the evolutionary game of um of uh of, of academia um so, so in this way i think and, you could and make very a, few yeah. people in academia like this system as right. it exists and that's the hallmark either of a system in which academics have no power and somebody else is in charge or in which you have a totalitarian schema that satisfies nobody and serves no human function or purpose. Right, right. Neither, neither wants nor needs. Yeah, just, just the processes. That, although the processes can only really, I think, survive in the long term if some, some kind of need is satisfied. Well, they have to. They have to minimally satisfy human beings' survival needs, but right. only minimally. Yeah. They don't necessarily have to make us thrive or make us happy. And and. Fulfilling our survival needs can be incidental to its, uh, to the things that it tends to emphasize. You don't have right. to be the primary objective. Yeah. And I think when it comes to capitalism, we see that survival is not the primary objective. Large numbers of people starve under global capitalism, but it's not enough people for the whole human race to die or for the capitalist system to fail. And yeah. so the system doesn't care that some people starve to death or that some people uh, end up dying in, in deaths of despair or because they don't have access to health care. That's all incidental. Survival is not the principal objective of that system. It's just a, something that yeah. it has to satisfy enough so that the system can keep going. But it's not, it's, it's not the thing that it prioritizes. I'm reminded of... Um an idea I think you've recently raised about instead of it being, as you, as you were saying earlier, um, bonobos and chimps, that ind individuals ruling the roast instead, uh, you've also recently suggested it's uh, artificial agents and impersonal systems. And I'm assuming by this, the artificial agent is the state. And the impersonal system is something like the market economy. Is that right? States, markets, and, and probably also TNCs. That's a good point. Transnational corporations, for those unfamiliar with that acronym. Right. Because I guess that the TNCs exist in the marketplace and the kind of competitive units in the marketplace, but also are sufficiently large that they have a kind of agency of their own. I mean, by the same token, states exist in the... In this system, in the yeah, in the international, international political theorist, system, yeah, right, right. So you've got the market, the the anarchy of the market, uh, in which companies, uh, or for those of uh, of a more Marxist persuasion, social classes are competing with each other. But equally, uh, you've got the interstate system in which states are competing with each other. Yeah. Yeah, um, borrowing on from David's point that both states and corporations are artificial agents. David Ratzeman's point. With states, there's also the world systems theory that in Emmanuel Wallerstein and other um other Marxists talking about the world uh, the world economy, um, uh, where there's this idea that you can grump you can uh, group states into core semi-periphery and periphery, uh, a kind of analogy to 
the ruling and the ruled classes in in Marx. And I think that maybe one difference here is that to focus on states and corporations is to focus on yeah, to focus on kind of um yeah, artificial agents on um or, or purely artificial persons, um as a kind of Quentin Skinner one, what one Hobbes uh, scholar puts it. I think artificial agents is Runciman's um uh alternative to Skinner. But in any case, the the emphasis on classes or on cores and peripheries is a kind of I mean it's not the thing is that a class or a core periphery is, is it's neither an abstract agent, but nor is it a system. It's kind of somewhere between these things, because people sometimes attribute agency to classes, um, uh, but it's it's harder to personate classes because without some well, kind of political representation. I, I think when we talk about class, what we're talking about is the kinds of institutions and structures which we tend to associate with, uh, with that class. So there are certain institutions yeah. and structures which tend to select members of particular classes to make them up. And they tend to select members of particular classes for particular roles. And that has certain yeah. consequences. So if you have, say, a political party that has a class composition that is pre predominantly working class, that implies that you have a political party with, with a set of selection incentives that favor people from particular economic roles and who perhaps share ways of thinking or sets of values that we might associate with having been in those roles. But I, I do mm. think that when we talk about class, it's a mushier thing than, say, a corporation or a state, because a corporation or a state is an, an institution, or a party. A party is an institution. And it, it's meaningful to talk about the roles of classes in institutions. But I think when we just talk about classes as directly in charge, we miss the fact that no class can be in charge unmediated by an institution. And the institution, institutions classes participate in themselves heavily shape class character. So, for instance, insofar as the bourgeoisie are a dominant class, it's because they interface with the market in such a way that they are empowered. And it's the institution of the market which empowers the bourgeoisie because the institution of the market has selection criteria for which the bourgeoisie is well adapted. And mm. we can only speak of the bourgeoisie in a meaningful way because there is this set of market criteria which selects them and which then puts them in positions where they appear to have authority. So when we say rule by the bourgeoisie, what we really mean is rule by the market. It's just that rule by the market takes the concrete form of the bourgeoisie selected for leading positions. But if the bourgeoisie were to act like anything other than bourgeoisie, then they would not be selected for those positions and then they would not be ruling. So in what sense do the bourgeoisie as people or as a class really rule? It's the market that rules and the bourgeoisie happen to be the people who are best adapted and therefore the people who get picked. But if they in any way meaningfully changed their behavior or their character, then they would not be selected. They would not be picked. It's like when we talk about people who run businesses, 
If they begin running their businesses in an uncompetitive way, if they abandon the values that we associate with the bourgeoisie, you know, the values of hard work and so on, then their companies won't do well. And they won't be in positions of influence in society. Their businesses will fold and they'll be declassed. They'll be removed from the bourgeoisie. So it's not that the bourgeoisie rules, it's that the market rules. And the bourgeoisie are the people that get selected by the selective imperatives of the market for the roles, for the faces of that system that give the system its power, right? Because Hobbes makes this point that you cannot have an abstract entity like the commonwealth, the state, or the market uh, acting directly because it's an abstraction. You need a person to personate that abstraction to give it life. But you can design a political system or a market system in such a way that it can only be personated by people who behave in a particular kind of way. And if it can only be personated by people who behave in a particular kind of way, then those people are never in charge. They've only been picked because they have the set of qualities and traits and behaviors that that system selects for. And it's the fact that the system selects for those traits that causes the system to behave the way it does, not the person themselves who would never have been selected if they were different and therefore has, they have no capacity to actually rule or actually make decisions other than those which fit the system's pre-existing imperatives. Mm. And that's what I think you're getting into when you talk about evolutionary selection criteria. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very interesting. There's one more question I want to ask. Uh, did you look at any of G.A. Cohen's later material on conservatism? And mm. if you did, what do you think of that? Yeah, so G.A. Cohen has an interestingly eclectic uh, uh, corpus of work, um, ranging from Karl Marx's theory of history of defense uh, through his dialogue with liberal political philosophy, um, Figures such as uh, Dworkin um, and uh, and Williams. Cohen was at the same uh, uh, college, um, All Souls College, Oxford, as uh, the philosopher Derek Parfit. Um, and uh, Cohen's reputation, I think, in, in philosophy is as great, if not greater, um, than his uh, uh, reputation in uh sociology um, and kind of um, theories of history. I mean, partly because not many people really study theories of history nowadays. But towards the end of his life, he also, um, after uh, flirting both with Marxism and uh, liberalism, um, mounted a, uh, uh, with liberalism, I should say, the particular values he defended were Kind of values of the French Revolution, liberty, uh, uh, well, particularly equality um, and community, and he he tried to tie his early interests to his middle career interests by arguing that um, both equality and community, and a kind of concept of radical equality of opportunity, can be satisfied with um, his idea of. Um, Democratic socialism uh, better than they can under present conditions. So that that was his early middle career interests. But yeah, his 
yeah, one of his most interesting philosophical contributions was arguing that conservatism can be distinguished from the alternative and perhaps some variety of utilitarianism or liberalism, which says that roughly what we should be doing, uh, morally speaking, is uh, preserving and expanding value and maximizing value. Um, I think this has an interesting echo of of the discussion of value in Marx that um, Cohen made in in the seventies and eighties. Um, I think I think here he's talking more generally about moral value rather than simply economic value. Though I think one one critique of the idea of maximizing value is that it is a kind of economic idea of accumulation, and it turns morality into a kind of economic philosophy, which is what Marx says about utilitarianism. Interestingly. Um, but at any rate, uh, Cohen goes on to argue that a kind of conservative philosophy, instead of being interested in maximizing value, is interested in preserving things that have value. I mean, it's interesting the move, the move that he makes there, because he could just say conservatism is preserving value and not just trying to accumulate and maximize it at all costs. Instead, he's saying it's preserving things that have value. It's preserving concrete things that have value. So it may be the case that you can maximize value by getting rid of certain things that have value. Um, but conservatism says that it's those things that have value that uh, are the things that we need to uh, look after and care for. I mean, there are numerous arguments that can be offered for this view. I, I think one would be that you can't really be certain that you'll maximize value in the long term by getting rid of things that have value in the short term. But I think more generally, the intuition is that it's intrinsically good to look after things that have value, even if there might be better things, even though the the grass might be greener over the hill, it's worth trying to um, yeah, live with what we have rather than just looking for more. And there is, I think, something... Um, there is this is definitely i think a conservative view i think it has some similarity to edmund burke's view that we shouldn't get rid of um institutions of um uh no nobility and um or at least a value such as values that accompany these institutions uh like uh, uh acting decently uh and acting with chivalry uh in order to get some higher goal, some higher values that the French Revolution was looking for. Um, instead, we should make the best of what we have rather than making a leap into the dark where we have no guarantee that we'll get anything better. Um, and I think there's also a, a kind of similarity with this view and um, the view in uh, made by... Um, uh, Robert Gooden in the book on settling that um, instead of just striving for more things, maximizing value in other words, we should sometimes settle with what we are, uh, what we are, uh, what we have. And I think that's kind of what um, uh, Cohen is suggesting with um, um, conser- with, with, with conservatism, um, making the best of what we uh, have rather than constantly looking for more. Now, now, of course, I, I wonder if there is a middle way between these views. And uh, I, I think, um, uh, you know, the discussion of uh, unsettling um, 
you, you may have proposed just such a a, 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 a third way. Um, but I think that third way is um, something that um, uh, eludes Cohen um, in his kind of middle and late career oscillation between uh, liberalism and uh, conservatism. And I think that oscillation follows from, in some ways, his disappointment in early career with, you know, the, the attempt to make Marxism analytical and clear, and the difficulty he found in uh, in, in finding much um, uh, much of an audience for that. Uh, there certainly was an audience, but I think a lot of people weren't um, perhaps as receptive as th that they might have been because, um, yeah, because of this big split between analytic and continental philosophy that I think Cohen like Marx, tried to bridge, uh, but in the end found it quite hard to bridge because um, it's, uh, it's uh, kind of... It, it, it's, it's not... Uh, it's not Balance isn't really something that um, is really favoured in the modern world. It's much more fashionable, much more easy, much more adaptable in some ways to oscillate because that's kind of what the system does anyway. I wonder if perhaps it might have helped if he had that distinction that many of the continentals have between instrumental and substantive value, and perhaps mm. what he was associating conservatism with was a defense, perhaps, of substantive value against the encroachments of instrumental value. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a utilitarian calculus which emphasizes certain things but excludes a lot of other stuff. And that perhaps conservatives are trying to protect those, that set of other things from the expansion of instrumental value. And that would be an interesting way of formulating a conservative position and one that could potentially be mixed together with Marxism. But I don't think he was totally able to get there in part because of the estrangement between the analytic and continental branches of this tree. But I, I think it's interesting that he was sort of pulling in that kind of direction late in life. Hmm. I wonder if one thing that's lost in the rejection of the dialectic too is synthesis, because I think that it's not it's not it's not impossible for um for people today to come up with idea kind of mediating ideas between poles like Empiricism and rationalism, or, or say substantive and instrumental value. I, I wonder if something like social or relational value is one way of mediating between those two poles. But for, for Hegel, it's not enough just to mediate between the two to have both or to have a middle term. Because for Aristotle, the way that you manage distinctions is to try to find a middle term find a balance, find a mean, and that will keep everything in order. But I, I think for Hegel, that's not enough. You can't just have all three bits, the, the two extremes and the mean. You need to kind of bring things together. You need to tr take a step from balance to, to unity. Uh, and I think for Hegel, a synthesis is kind of a, kind of a balanced uh, uh, unity, whereas most people, I think, try to interpret it either as either is a balance in the Aristotelian sense or is a real unity in the Hobbesian sense, a kind of transcendence. 
And I think R- Russell's critique of Hegel roughly follows this logic that Hegel's idea of synthesis is too mystical uh, to really be uh, uh, to, to, to be valid. Um, but on the other hand, I think other people see the idea of synthesis as um, something that is just a bit dull and something that is, um, you know, when Hegel talks about having, you know, mediating institutions, as we've discussed before, between the individual and the collective, I think in, in some ways he's violating his own rule that it's not enough to mediate. You've got to both mediate and balance and then bring the things together. You've got to bridge the gap between is and ought, between instrumental and substantive value. And you've kind of not only bridge the gap, but kind of overcome the gap. Uh, but that leans towards transcending the gap. So I think there's a bit of a, a tension between the drive towards balance and the drive towards unity and maybe the proper synthesis of is having having both balance and synthesis. Uh, and I think that that's kind of made possible by Marx's emphasis on, on the concrete. Because when you have... Uh, when you have the when you emphasize the concrete and the material, then you can kind of provide an anchor for synthesis. You can kind of try to anchor synthesis and material social forces and what's actually going on at the time. But you also need to be moving towards something that's more than just the instruments of production, moving towards some substantive goal and aim. And I I wonder if there's a way of um, yeah, pulling these ideas together because clearly we can't do without instrumental value, um, nor can we do without substantive value. Um, but equally, we can't just choose one or the other. We can't just choose the instrumental values like the analytic philosophers kind of do, or the substantive values as the continental philosophers kind of do. Uh, there has to be a way of having both and bridging the gap and getting something new. Um, yeah, and may- maybe that's kind of what uh, uh, the where analytical philosophy or academia in general has got to now, um, post-September group, that we're in a stage where ideas have kind of ossified and there's nothing new under the sun, whereas us. Hannah Arendt argues in the human condition, what really makes us human is the ability to think of something new and then do something new. Um, yeah, and maybe that's uh, maybe maybe that kind of thing is what academia needs right now, but maybe it won't quite get it just yet. Loss of dynamism. I think mm-hmm. you've done a lovely job there of summing up a lot of the themes that we've talked about while you and I've been doing this show together. And I think it's an appropriate time to, to say to the audience that Edmund has kind of reached a point where he is so busy that it's hard for him to make a whole lot of these episodes. He's doing this MPhil, and I also hear he's got some music that he's working on. Edmund, if you don't know, has quite a bit of artistic talent. So, for these reasons, this is going to be the last of Edmund's main episodes, at least for a while. He may come back now and again, but he's going to leave as the student co-host, and we're going to bring in 
another one of my students, my old students, to take over that role. We're going to do one more patron Q&A episode with Edmund. That's going to be, uh, we're going to do that, I think we're going to record that on December 19th. So if you have questions for Edmund especially, try to get them before December 19th. But after that point, we're going to bring on this new student, and Edmund is going to go do all of these wonderful things that he's doing and not have to balance all of that with <laughs> having to try to keep up with this show. So I, before, before we go, Edmund, do you want to tell the listeners anything about this EP that you're working on? Hmm. Well, I am... Been for a while interested in uh, kind of bridging the gap between, uh, uh, yeah, between genres of music as well as kind of spheres of philosophy and w whether I can um, have a better shot at doing it in music than uh, than in uh, academia. I don't know, um, but I'm going to try it out and um, in the uh, well in the spring. There will be a, uh, an EP, an extended play, uh, so a relatively short album um, with uh, five or so tracks. Um, it is part of a kind of sequence of musical projects that I have in mind. Um, but yeah, the first one is uh, will be coming out in spring. And it will be a uh, under a kind of it's diff it's difficult to say too much at this stage uh, because uh, it's still kind of in development and there'll be more that uh, uh, my kind of social media accounts and kind of aff affiliated music social media accounts will be releasing in the spring. What I can say is that. Uh, it is, in some ways, um, both something that is uh, trying to kind of follow in the spirit of, you know, linking to a lot of the things that we've you know, discussed on the podcast about bridging the gap I, uh, and, and balancing things. I, I, I feel like it's often hard to do that in... Uh, with, with with different things with both say like academic work and and music but i feel within if you focus your mind on any particular thing uh, on trying to bring different things together then i think it 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 can be done i think with uh with with this debut album the uh the plan is to uh, make something that is Primarily uh, uh, intervention in uh, popular music, inverted commas, um, but in a way that I think uh, is trying to, I don't know, as far as it's possible, do something, uh, do something interesting and new. Uh, but I have, uh, you know, no expectations about it. Uh, but I uh, can say that it'll be, um, it'll be coming out in the spring, and it's. Uh, it's good fun to make, and I hope um, 
I hope it's uh, as enjoyable to uh, listen to as it uh, is to make. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, I should say that, you know, um, doing the podcast for the past um, a couple years has been uh, a phenomenal experience. And it's, uh, you know, ever since uh, Benjamin's asked me to do this, it's, you know, I, 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 I was uh, as, as thrilled w- was he asked as I have been since to be making every episode. And it, it really is purely due to time constraints that I'm, um, I'm leaving for now at the moment uh, because the episodes are still uh, a hell of a lot of fun to make. And um, it, it's really been a, a r- really been a, 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 a brilliant, a brilliant, brilliant time. Um, and I, yeah, just like to say thanks to um, Benjamin, thanks to our wonderful uh, sound engineer Adam, and uh, thanks to um, um, and thanks to everyone who's been listening to the podcast for the past couple of years. Um, for making all this possible, it's just been a, it's just been a great experience to kind of discuss these ideas in a, uh, in, in, in this kind of format. Um, I think you know, people often like to learn about this stuff in, 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 in books, and there are plenty of podcasts out there. Um, I, I, I feel it's been quite a, uh, this, this podcast is. It is really quite something um, special, and it's been a, a, an honor uh, and a pleasure to be a uh, uh, to, to, to be a part of this. Um, and I uh, I uh, hope that Political Theory One and One continues to be the podcast that uh, it, it has always been, um, which has been yeah bridging the gap between seemingly different things that can be. That in fact aren't really different at all. Yeah. Yeah, it's been absolutely wonderful making it with you these past few years. I'm so glad I invited you to do it. it you've been so terrific, and it's been so much fun. And I look forward to seeing how you continue to search for the golden meme, meme <laughs> in the realm of music. And maybe, maybe the golden meme will come out of the search for the golden meme along the way. Mm-hmm. We can only hope, but I, yeah, it, it's been it's been a wonderful thing doing this podcast. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I look forward to the 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 the, the, the patron app and the, and the questions that uh, the questions that people have. Yep, look looking forward to it too, and and do send whatever you get because this is this is it for Edmund for for a while. So, uh, th- thank you guys so much for listening and supporting, and. Uh, I'll be introducing the new student co-host soon, and I hope that you guys will like the new student co-host. So, as, as Edmund says, hopefully we will continue to bridge gaps and bring different things together. The new student who will be coming in has somewhat different emphases than Edmund, but also wants to connect the political to some stuff that is sometimes not always straightforwardly associated with the political. So, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I expect the show to continue to be fun and perhaps for the number of episodes to increase a little bit. 
We may also revisit some of the topics we've done a couple of years ago from different perspectives. We are not necessarily going to refrain from touching on some of those old topics, so we may get to update our takes a little bit on some things, combine theorists that previously we did in, in some combinations. We might do them in different combinations. We might have a little bit of, uh, of different sorts of fun. But uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for supporting the, the show the last couple of years. And I look forward to season two when the next episode comes out. Bye-bye, guys. Thanks, Benjamin. Thanks for our wonderful sound engineer. And as always, thanks, everyone. Bye.